At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. What would Donald Trump have done with Joe Biden if January 6th had somehow worked? For all those wringing their hands about disqualifying Trump from the ballot via the 14th Amendment without a conviction, even though the 14th Amendment does not say convicted or charged, just engaged in insurrection, for the Steve Schmitz and the Byron Donaldses and the idiots from New York Magazine and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and the transparently scheming Congressman Dean Phillips trying to primary the president and pretend he's a Democrat. Let me repeat the question with which I just began. If Trump's attempt to stop the transfer of power by violence on January 6th, 2021, had worked, or if Trump's Eastman Chesbro fake electors coup had worked, or if Trump's Jeffrey Clark, that's why we have an Insurrection Act coup, had worked, or if Trump's special counsel Sidney Powell seizes the voting machines coup had worked, if any subversion of the 2020 election or violent or merely threatening violence overthrow of the democratically elected government of the United States or of any other of Trump's perversions had worked, if noon on January 20th had come but Trump had not gone, what do you think Donald Trump would have done with Joe Biden. Or let me rephrase it. What would Donald Trump have done to Joe Biden? The 46th president-elect of the United States, and he is prevented by whatever means from assuming office as demanded by the Constitution, and Trump remains in power extra-legally, extra-judicially, extra-constitutionally, and we are to believe that Biden would have been left free to speak in public, to appear on television, on social media, 
in the courts to talk to the Speaker of the House of Representatives from the Democratic Party and to the Majority Leader of the Senate from the Democratic Party to speak with Democratic governors with their authority over the National Guard, to speak with anyone who just, you know, likes the Constitution. Trump would have found a pretext to detain President-elect Biden. Or he had a pretext to detain him, a plan we just have not found out about yet. And that's a best-case scenario. For having once crossed the ultimate threshold, having ended 237 years of American democracy, having retained power as a dictator by some other title, what would Trump have then not been willing to do next? To anybody still pawing at the dirt and looking at the 14th Amendment, which was used successfully and nonviolently and without convictions or charges, and pretty much uncontroversially, half a century before the 19th Amendment was used to give votes to women, let me ask you about whether it has dawned on you yet that you are rationalizing, superimposing a standard of proof not required by the Constitution on a scumbag insurrectionist who tried to overthrow the government and certainly had a second plan of some kind ready if he succeeded, a second, darker, bloodier plan. And guess what? Trump's plan for Joe Biden would not have required convictions either. Sorry to offend your sensibilities. I mean, not to hammer this into the ground and not to cost you any sleep during the holiday season, but what was the end game for Trump on January 6th? What happens to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and the editors of The New York Times and the producers at PBS and the Democratic senators and the Republicans who spoke out against him? What happens to all of them, Steve Schmidt? And to you, and to me, and most importantly, what would Trump have done with a man he would have wanted the world to believe was an extra American president, an illegitimate extra American president, a man somehow involved, Trump would have said, in the greatest political crime in the modern history of the Western world? He would have had Joe Biden killed. Or if somebody had stopped him, Trump would have had him seized somehow by someone, by some official sounding but ultimately fabricated and illegal and anti-American, quote, authority, unquote. And he would have had him held, incommunicado, disappeared with Kamala Harris and Pelosi and Schumer and uncooperative senators and congressmen of both parties, and hundreds of reporters and editors and governors and you and me and Schmidt and God knows how many others on the pretext of God knows what kind of imaginary plot we were all involved with to thwart Trump by enforcing the Constitution. Bluntly, it is hard to believe the following sentence could ever be said by anybody at any time, but the darker, grimmer point about 
enforcing the Constitution, enforcing the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, is that Trump's insurrection is not just what he planned and fomented and watched with glee from the White House on January 6th, not just what actually happened. It is more importantly, more damningly, about whatever he had planned next. That is why the Colorado Supreme Court was right, because that second plan is the true comparison to the Civil War traitors against whom the 14th Amendment was first applied, because the Confederacy's plans involved killing the President of the United States and the Vice President and half the Cabinet and burning down New York City and using agents coming in from Canada to seize Northern American ports. And just because the Confederacy did not win the Civil War, those plans did not miraculously disappear from the minds of the traitors. Just as Trump's plans for what to do with one president too many did not miraculously disappear from his diseased and monomaniacal and traitorous mind. In the context in which it must be applied today, the 14th Amendment is not about what Trump did in 2020 and 2021. It's about what else he was willing to do and what horrors he is willing to precipitate today and in 2024 next month. And God forbid, in January of 2029, the 14th Amendment is not some violation of our tradition of due process. Just as Lincoln defending the government of the United States by military force in 1861 was not some violation of due process. The simple truth is that Donald Trump has been treated with kid gloves by this country. And recognizing that the 14th Amendment has already disqualified him from running for president or any office ever again in his goddamned life. This is, in fact, a continuation of treating him with kid gloves. For 16 days shy of three full, long, agonizing years, this nation has bent over backwards and not crushed the perpetrator of insurrection and rebellion against the United States of America and specifically its Constitution. The Constitution, however, is self-protecting. That is what the 14th Amendment is for. If you have doubts about it, ask yourself that question with which I began rhetorically. If January 6th had succeeded, what would Trump have then done with and to Joe Biden? Keep your answer to yourself and get the hell out of the way of justice and get the hell out of the way of the Constitution of the United States of America. Oh, but happily. Turns out Trump is not an insurrectionist. You know how we know that? Because he's now posted this online. I'm not an insurrectionist. Parenthesis, peacefully and patriotically. End parenthesis. Biden is. End quote. 
And you know how you can tell Trump is telling the truth? Because he used 11 whole words to deny that he's an insurrectionist. The guy who writes thousand-word-long threads every three days insisting the judge is lying and he is too richer than all the rest of us bastards put together, and those threads are all caps. Eleven words. I await his next definitive post. Hitler? Not me. None of my relatives were from Braunau. I am not secretly related to him. None of my relatives served into the 16th Bavarian Reserve Regiment with him. I've never even read Hitler's Zweites Buch. Why hasn't Biden said this? The Republican rationales for Trump channeling Hitler, well, baby Hitler channeling old Hitler, they are happily so lame as to be genuinely funny at a time when we need this. Senators Sullivan of Alaska and Vance of Ohio actually wondered if maybe he was talking about fentanyl. Congresswoman Maliatakis of New York, who is just not bright, said no, no, he was talking about democratic policies. That's what he meant by poisoning. And then Trump made all three of them look like idiots when he said, no, you're right. I am saying the same things as Hitler, but, quote, in a much different way. And he's going to keep on saying it. Rolling Stone, which has had sources who sometimes outlandish claims and predictions about what baby Hitler would do next, have been scoffed at. And then they turned out to be pretty much prescient and exact. Rolling Stone quotes one of those sources again as saying Trump, quote, said he's going to keep doing it. He's going to keep saying they're poisoning the blood of the nation and destroying and killing the country. He says it's a, quote, great line, unquote. Well, of course it's a great line. Look at what Hitler did with it in the 30s. A second Rolling Stone source says Trump thinks he's been, quote, too nice about the, quote, animals. So he's going to get tougher. And guess what? He did it again last night. He put out a video at 7.04 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Illegal immigration is poisoning the blood of our nation. They're coming from prisons, from mental institutions, from all over the world. Without borders and fair elections, you don't have a country. I didn't hear the word fentanyl in there, did you? Boy, oh boy, is Nicole Maliotakis going to be sorely pressed to make up new bullshit excuses every day. Back to disqualification, early polling, the country favors enforcing the 14th Amendment, 54% strongly or somewhat approve, 35% strongly or somewhat disapprove. That is a 19-point margin, with only 11% undecided. Hell, a quarter of Republicans approve of it. It's a YouGov poll, and they also did the general election with and without a Trump conviction. It is 44-44 right now. With a Trump conviction, it's 46-39 Biden. So now here's another question. Who else is ineligible to run for any office now under the 14th Amendment? Because if there's one scale the Supreme Court cannot stick its thumb on for sure, it's for anybody running for Congress or the Senate or governor, since the 14th has already been used to disqualify people running for those offices. 
trial now underway in Atlanta to disqualify Georgia's Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones because he was one of Trump's fake electors. Yeah, bigger fish? Well, nobody's moved on Congressman Scott Perry yet, but this has his name written all over it. Or how about Ronna McDaniel? She has aspirations for elected office. Well, they're out the window. The Detroit News revealed last night it has reviewed a recording from November 17th, 2020, in which Trump gets on the blower and pressures two canvassers from Wayne County, Michigan, to not sign the certification of the 2020 election for Biden in their state. We've got to fight for our country, Trump is recorded as saying on the call. We can't let these people take our country away from us. Then another voice chimes in and tells the two Michigan politicians, if you can go home tonight, do not sign it. We will get you attorneys. The voice was that of Ronna McDaniel, chairman of the RNC. If she is now only hit with the 14th Amendment, she'll be lucky because that's a crime for which she could go to jail. Vivek Ramaswamy is probably safe. However, he is also probably nuts. It's clear the puppet masters have lost their use for Biden and are slowly sidelining him, he writes on Twitter X. But the real trick is who they're propping up instead. It's not Gavin or Michelle, as I'd assumed before. It's far more insidious. Open your eyes, folks. It's staring us right in the face. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's Taylor Swift. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Taylor Swift's going to be president. The puppet masters. Christ, Ramaswamy. Is it Kermit the Frog? Moron. And, of course, as you have already heard, a day after the judge in the Shea Moss-Ruby Freeman case ruled that he has a history of trying to avoid paying stuff so they should and legally could claim their $148 million from Rudy Giuliani right now, Rudy Giuliani filed for Chapter 11 yesterday. (laughs) From morally bankrupt to actually bankrupt. In the document, he claims assets of up to $10 million, but debts of $152.7 million. That would be more, right? The best part is the list of debtors that Woody submitted in the filing that a lot of experts think will be rejected anyway. There's this company, Giuliani Partners. Rudy owes himself money. There's the federal government, the New York state government. He owes a total of a million in back taxes. By the way, the New York Post once wrote me up because my accountant and the IRS were politely resolving a disagreement over $725. Overman avoids taxes. Rudy owes money to his former assistant, the one who said he offered to sell pardons on Trump's behalf. He owes money to a divorce accountant. Oh, and he owes money to one Robert Hunter Biden... Rudy owes money to Hunter Biden? Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. Wait. Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. Oh. Oh, Nancy. Whoa, Rudy, 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 are you bankrupt? Oh, Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. 
Are you broke? Oh, Rudy, 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 are you drugged up? Rudy, Rudy, did you go? Whoa. Thank you, Nancy Faust. Also of interest here, Congressman Tim Burchett says Republicans in the House are being blackmailed by the Russians using honeypots. He goes into great detail. He seems to know an awful lot about how this would work in real time. Like a lot. Like way too much. But first, this is the last scheduled episode of the year. I'm betting there will be a bulletin before New Year's Eve. So I have two things about it being the last scheduled episode of the year. I've never asked you to forward a given edition of the podcast to anybody. But if you would forward this one to somebody who does not listen, I think the point about what Trump would have done to Biden had the coup worked is an essential question, and I haven't heard it asked, at least not recently, at least not in the context of applying the 14th Amendment. And on a lighter note, I think you may have noticed that I like being silly about even these darkest of topics when possible, and that for some reason, even at my advanced age, I still fancy myself a modern Tom Lehrer. Wow. Modern Tom Lehrer who can, quote, sing, unquote, for like 13, 14 seconds. So here, just for you, are all of the mock songs I've done with Nancy Faust in 2023. Enjoy and or hit stop immediately. My feet died in the morning. Ding dong, the locks are gonna chime. Pinch me, jail me, book me and bail me, but get me to the trial on time. You make a bad time to leave me, you seal. With 40 counts against me and your plea deal. The boss wants server deleted, won't he? You make the fine time to leave me, you seal. Thank you, Nancy Faust. Nancy Faust. I'm so indicted and I just can't fight it. I'm about to go to jail and America likes it. I'm so indicted. My defense ain't airtighted. And I know, I know the unindicted co-conspirators can bite it. Bite it. 
intimidate a witness. Can I terrorize a witness? Thank you, Nancy Faust. Reunited and it feels so good. Reunited like it's violin wood. There's one perfect fit and sugar prison is it. The country's so excited cause it's reunited. Hey, hey. Thank you, Nancy Faust. Something parked at your insurrection. Who you gonna call? Ghostbusters! Thank you, Nancy Faust! I had the scoop that you had the contract, then I had the story, the plane, and the hours. I wish you had signed with Toronto, dear Shohei, cause now my career has been sent to the showers. Where, where are you tonight? How could you leave me here all alone? I searched the world over and I thought I found a tiny, but you met the Dodgers and you was gone. Thank you, Nancy Faust. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Countdown with Keith Oberman. Oberman. Friend Larry David doing his impression of the late Yankee Stadium Stentorian PA announcer Bob Shepard introducing me. The streams have merged. Still to come on Countdown, end of the week, end of the year. Merry Christmas. 
with, for my money, the most wonderfully cynical and stunningly prophetic of all of the works of James Thurber. Most of them read like he wrote them last week, but this time he wrote a story about Trump, but in 1940, the greatest man in the world, and Fridays with Thurber. First time for the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. World. The bronze worst, Congressman Tim Burchett. He has told a fascist podcast that he is confident that a large number of conservative congressmen and women are compromised by the Russians and by others. He thinks they are being forced to vote against Republican bills by the Russians. And I think he's whistling past graveyards there, but that's not the point. The point is, listen to this quote from Tim Burchett. You know the old honeypot. The Russians do that, and I'm sure members of Congress have been caught up. Why in the world would good conservatives vote for crazy stuff like what we've been seeing? Here's how it works. You're visiting, you're out of the country or out of town or you're in a motel or at a bar in D.C. and whatever you're into, women, men, whatever, comes up and they're very attractive and they're laughing at your jokes and you're buying them a drink. Next thing you know, you're in the motel room with them naked. And next thing you know, you're about to make a key vote and what happens? Some well-dressed person (laughs) comes up, whispers in your ear, hey man, there's tapes out on you. Were you in a motel room on whatever with whoever? And you're like, "Uh uh-oh. And they say, you really ought not to be voting for this thing. And what do they do? It's human nature, unquote. Just a shame Burchett couldn't go into any detail, huh? It's like... I mean, it's just a hunch on my part here, but it's almost like he's been in the room with the victims of the compromat and the people doing the compromat. (laughs) Just saying. By the way, the point here is this has been characterized as Congressman Burchett thinks a large number of conservative congressmen and women are compromised by Russians and others. No, the real headline should be phrased, Congressman Burchett thinks there are actually some conservative congressmen and women who are not being compromised by the Russians. Now that's a story. Runners up, worser, the Washington Post. If you noticed that in the last year, the Washington Post started to... Well, let me use a journalistic insider term here. If you noticed the Washington Post started to suck, you ain't seen nothing yet. The new publisher and CEO just appointed by Jeff Bezos to replace the last publisher and CEO who made the post suck? He is Sir William Lewis. And apart from the fact that he is a Murdoch editor, he ran the Wall Street Journal, he helped run the company that ran Murdoch's News of the World, which was so up to its neck in the infamous British phone hacking journalism scandal, which included the stealing of voicemails, of a murdered British teenaged girl. It was so infamous that Rupert Murdoch closed the paper down rather than deal with the fallout of the hacking scandal. This is the guy who will now run the Washington Post? Talk about compromat. I think they got Jeff Bezos this time. Hey, New York Times, better step up, boys. But our winner, the worst, 
John Schneider, that actor from the Dukes of Hazard, who I'm guessing you, like me, thought was dead. He has been body snatched, though. Mr. President, he writes in a response to a tweet from Joe Biden, I believe you are guilty of treason and should be publicly hung. Your son, too. Your response is sincerely John Schneider, unquote. Well, I'm guessing Biden's response would be, who in the hell is John Schneider? Like he's going to respond to you, dude. John, also it's hanged, dim bulb. Unless you're referring to those photos of Hunter that Marjorie Taylor Greene showed in the House committee and then took home with her waka waka. Schneider, two days! Worst person in the world! At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Okay, the last Fridays with Thurber for the year 2023. And once again, I can never get over how prophetic this was. James Thurber wrote this story in the 1930s, and it is as bitterly cynical and deeply observant as anything else he ever wrote, and nearly everything he wrote was bitterly cynical and deeply observant. The greatest man in the world... When it turns out the greatest man in the world is uh, Trump and he's uh, fooled everybody, only this was written before Trump was born. James Thurber and the greatest man in the world. Looking back on it now from the vantage point of 1940, one can only marvel that it had not happened long before it did. The United States of America had been ever since Kitty Hawk, blindly constructing the elaborate petard by which sooner or later it must be hoist. 
It was inevitable that someday there would come roaring out of the skies a national hero of insufficient intelligence, background, and character successfully to endure the mounting orgies of glory prepared for aviators who stayed up for a long time or flew a great distance. Both Lindbergh and Byrd, fortunately for national decorum and international amity, had been gentlemen. So had our other famous aviators. They wore their laurels gracefully, withstood the awful weather of publicity, married excellent women, usually a fine family, and quietly retired to private life and the enjoyment of their varying fortunes. No untoward incidents on a worldwide scale marred the perfection of their conduct on the perilous heights of fame. The exception to the rule was, however, bound to occur, and it did. In July 1937, when Jack Pal Smirch, erstwhile mechanics helper, in a small garage in Westfield, Iowa, flew a second-hand, single-motored, Bresthaven Dragonfly 3 monoplane all the way around the world without stopping. Never before in the history of aviation had such a flight as Smirch's even been dreamed of. No one had even taken seriously the weird floating auxiliary gas tanks, invention of the mad New Hampshire professor of astronomy, Dr. Charles Lewis Gresham, upon which Smirch placed full reliance. When the garage worker, a slightly built, surly, unprepossessing young man of 22 appeared at Roosevelt Field early in July 1937, slowly chewing a great quid of scrap tobacco and announced, Nobody ain't seen no flying yet. The newspapers touched briefly and satirically upon his projected 25,000-mile flight. Aeronautical and automotive experts dismissed the idea curtly, implying that it was a hoax, a publicity stunt. The rusty, battered, second-hand plane wouldn't go. The Gresham auxiliary tanks wouldn't work. It was simply a cheap joke. Smirch, however, after calling on a girl in Brooklyn who worked in the flap-folding department of a large paper box factory, a girl whom he later described as his sweet patootie, climbed nonchalantly into his ridiculous plane at dawn of the memorable 7th of July, 1937, spit a curve of tobacco juice into the still air and took off, carrying with him only a gallon of bootleg gin and six pounds of salami. When the garage boy thundered out over the ocean, the papers were forced to record in all seriousness that a mad, unknown young man, his name was variously misspelled, had actually set out upon a preposterous attempt to span the world in a rickety one-engine contraption, trusting to the long-distance refueling device of a crazy schoolmaster. When nine days later, without having stopped once, the tiny plane appeared above San Francisco Bay, headed for New York, spluttering and choking to be sure, but still magnificently and miraculously aloft, the headlines, which long since had crowded everything else off the front page, even the shooting of the governor of Illinois by the Valletti gang, swelled to unprecedented size, and the news stories began to run to 25 and 30 columns. It was noticeable, however, that the accounts of the epoch-making flight touched rather lightly upon the aviator himself. 
This was not because the facts about the hero as a man were too meager, but because they were too complete. Reporters who had been rushed out to Iowa when Smirch's plane was first sighted over the little French coast town of serly le maire to dig up the story of the great man's life had promptly discovered that the story of his life could not be printed. His mother, a sullen short-order cook in a shack restaurant on the edge of a tourist's camping ground near Westfield, met all inquiries as to her son with an angry, "'Ah, the hell with him. I hope he drowns.'" His father appeared to be in jail somewhere for stealing spotlights and lap robes from tourists' automobiles. His young brother, a weak-minded lad, had but recently escaped from the Preston, Iowa Reformatory and was already wanted in several western towns for the theft of money order blanks from post offices. These alarming discoveries were still piling up at the very time that Pal Smirch, the greatest hero of the 20th century, blear-eyed, dead for sleep, half-starved, was piloting his crazy junk heap high above the region in which the lamentable story of his private life was being unearthed, headed for New York and a greater glory than any man of his time had ever known. The necessity for printing some account in the papers of the young man's career and personality had led to a remarkable predicament. It was, of course, impossible to reveal the facts, for a tremendous popular feeling in favor of the young hero had sprung up like a grass fire when he was halfway across Europe on his flight around the globe. He was, therefore, described as a modest chap, taciturn, blonde, popular with his friends, popular with girls. The only available snapshot of Smirch, taken at the wheel of a phony automobile in a cheap photo studio at an amusement park, was touched up so that the little vulgarian looked quite handsome. His twisted leer was smoothed into a pleasant smile. The truth was, in this way, kept from the youth's ecstatic compatriots. They did not dream that the Smirch family was despised and feared by its neighbors in the obscure Iowa town, nor that the hero himself, because of numerous unsavory exploits, had come to be regarded in Westfield as a nuisance and a menace. Pal Smirch had, the reporters discovered, once knifed the principal of his high school. Not mortally, to be sure, but he had knifed him. And on another occasion, surprised in the act of an stealing an altar cloth from a church, he had bashed the sexton over the head with a pot of Easter lilies. For each of these offenses, he had served a sentence in the reformatory. Inwardly, the authorities, both in New York and in Washington, prayed that an understanding providence might, however awful such a thing seemed, bring disaster to the rusty, battered plane and its illustrious pilot, whose unheard-of flight had aroused the civilized world to hosannas of hysterical praise. The authorities were convinced that the character of the renowned aviator was such that the limelight of adulation was bound to reveal him to all the world as a congenital hooligan, mentally and morally unequipped to cope with his own prodigious fame. I trust said the Secretary of State at one of the many secret cabinet meetings called to consider the national dilemma, I trust that his mother's prayer will be answered, by which he referred to Mrs. Emma Smirch's wish that her son might be drowned. 
It was, however, too late for that. Spurch had leaped the Atlantic and then the Pacific as if they were mill ponds. At three minutes after two o'clock on the afternoon of July 17, 1937, the garage boy brought his idiotic plane into Roosevelt Field for a perfect three-point landing. It had, of course, been out of the question to arrange a modest little reception for the greatest flyer in the history of the world. He was received at Roosevelt Field with such elaborate and pretentious ceremonies as rocked the world. Fortunately, however, the worn and spent hero promptly swooned, had to be removed bodily from his plane, and was spirited from the field without having opened his mouth once. Thus, he did not jeopardize the dignity of his first reception, a reception illumined by the presence of the Secretaries of War and the Navy, Mayor Michael J. Moriarty of New York, the Premier of Canada, Governors Fanneman, Groves, McFeely, and Critchfield, and a brilliant array of European diplomats. Smirch did not, in fact, come to in time to take part in the gigantic hullabaloo arranged at City Hall for the next day. He was rushed to a secluded nursing home and confined in bed. It was nine days before he was able to get up, or to be more exact, before he was permitted to get up. Meanwhile, the greatest minds in the country in solemn assembly had arranged a secret conference of city, state, and government officials, which Smirch was to attend for the purpose of being instructed in the ethics and behavior of heroism. On the day that the little mechanic was finally allowed to get up and dress, and for the first time in two weeks took a great chew of tobacco, he was permitted to receive the newspaper men, this by way of testing him out. Smirch did not wait for questions. Use guys, he said, and the Times man winced. Use guys can tell a cockeyed world. Thought I put it over on Lindbergh, see? Yeah, made an ass that I'm two frogs. The two frogs was a reference to a pair of gallant French flyers who, in attempting a flight only halfway around the world, had two weeks before unhappily been lost at sea. The Times man was bold enough at this point to sketch out for Smirch the accepted formula for interviews in cases of this kind. He explained that there should be no arrogant statements belittling the achievements of other heroes, particularly heroes of foreign nations. Ah, to hell with that, said Smirch. I did it, see? I did it, and I'm talking about it. And he did talk about it. None of this extraordinary interview was, of course, printed. On the contrary, the newspapers, already under the disciplined direction of a secret directorate created for the occasion and composed of statesmen and editors, gave out to a panting and restless world that Jackie, as he had been arbitrarily nicknamed, would consent to say only that he was very happy and that anyone could have done what he did. My achievement has been, I fear, slightly exaggerated, the Times man's article had him protest with a modest smile. These newspaper stories were kept from the hero, a restriction which did not serve to abate the rising malevolence of his temper. The situation was indeed extremely grave, for Pal Smirch was, as he kept insisting, raring to go. He could not much longer be kept from a nation clamorous to lionize him. It was the most desperate crisis the United States of America had faced since the sinking of the Lusitania. 
On the afternoon of the 27th of July, Smirch was spirited away to a conference room in which were gathered mayors, governors, government officials, behaviorist psychologists, and editors. He gave them each a limp, moist paw and a brief, unlovely grin. Hiya, he said. When Smirch was seated, the mayor of New York arose and, with obvious pessimism, attempted to explain what he must say and how he must act when presented to the world ending his talk with a high tribute to the hero's courage and integrity. The mayor was followed by Governor Fanneman of New York, who, after a touching declaration of faith, introduced Cameron Spottiswood, second secretary of the American Embassy in Paris, the gentleman selected to coach Smirch in the amenities of public ceremonies. Sitting in a chair with a soiled yellow tie in his hand and his shirt open at the throat, unshaved, Smoking a rolled cigarette, Jack Smirch listened with a leer on his lips. I get you. I get you, he cut in nastily. You want me to act like a softy, huh? You want me to act like that mebbity mebbity baby face Lindbergh, huh? Well, nuts to that, see? Everyone took in his breath sharply. It was a sigh and a hiss. Mr. Lindbergh? began a United States senator, purple with rage, and Mr. Bird, Smirch, who was paring his nails with a jackknife, cut in again. Boyd, he exclaimed, oh, for God's sake, that big... Somebody shut off the blasphemies with a sharp word. A newcomer had entered the word, the room. Everyone stood up except Smirch, who was still busy with his nails, and he did not even glance up. Mr. Smirch, said someone sternly, the president of the United States. It had been thought that the presence of the chief executive might have a chastening effect on the young hero, and the former had been, thanks to the remarkable cooperation of the press, secretly brought to the obscure conference room. A great, painful silence fell. Smirch looked up, waved a hand at the president. How you coming? he asked, and began rolling a fresh cigarette. The silence deepened. Someone coughed in a strained way. Jeez, it's hot, ain't it? said Smirch. He loosened two more shirt buttons, revealing a hairy chest and the tattooed word Sadie enclosed in a stenciled heart. The great and important men in the room, faced by the most serious crisis in American history, exchanged worried frowns. Nobody seemed to know how to proceed. Come on, come on, said Smirch. Let's get the hell out of here. When do I start cutting in on the parties, huh? And when is there going to be this in it? He rubbed a thumb and forefinger together meaningly. Money, exclaimed a state senator, shocked. Pale. Yeah, money, said Pal, flipping his cigarette out of the window. And big money. He began rolling a fresh cigarette. Big money, he repeated, frowning over the rice paper. He tilted back in his chair and leered at each gentleman separately. The leer of an animal that knows its power. The leer of a leopard loose in a bird and dog shop. Ah, oh, for God's sake, let's get someplace where it's cooler, he said. I've been cooped up plenty for three weeks. Smirch stood up and walked over to an open window. 
where he stood staring down into the street nine floors below. The faint shouting of newsboys floated up to him. He made out his name. Hot dog! He cried, grinning, ecstatic. He leaned out over the sill. You tell them, babies! He shouted down. Hot diggity dog! In the tense little knot of men standing behind him, a quick, mad impulse flared up. An unspoken word of appeal, of command, seemed to ring through the room, yet it was deadly silent. Charles K. L. Brand, secretary to the mayor of New York City, happened to be standing nearest Smirch. He looked inquiringly at the president of the United States. The president, pale, grim, nodded shortly. Brand, a tall, powerfully built man, wants a tackle at Rutgers University, stepped forward, seized the greatest man in the world by his left shoulder and the seat of his pants, and pushed him out the window. My God, he's fallen out the window, cried a quick-witted editor. Get me out of here, cried the president. Several men sprang to his side, and he was hurriedly escorted out of a door toward a side entrance of the building. The editor of the Associated Press took charge, being used to such things. Crisply, he ordered certain men to leave, others to stay. Quickly, he outlined a story which all the papers were to agree on, sent two men to the street to handle that end of the tragedy, commanded a senator to sob, and two congressmen to go to pieces nervously. In a word, he skillfully set the stage for the gigantic task that was to follow, the task of breaking to a grief-stricken world, the sad story of the untimely, accidental, death of its most illustrious and spectacular figure. The funeral was, as you know, <clears throat> the most elaborate, the finest, the solemnest, and the saddest ever held in the United States of America. The monument in Arlington Cemetery, with its clean white shaft of marble and the simple device of a tiny plane carved on its base, is a place for pilgrims in deep reverence to visit. The nations of the world paid lofty tributes to little Jackie Smirch, America's greatest hero. At a given hour, there were two minutes of silence throughout the nation, even the inhabitants of the small, bewildered town of Westfield, Iowa, observed this touching ceremony. Agents of the Department of Justice saw to that. One of them was especially assigned to stand grimly in the doorway of a little shack restaurant on the edge of the tourists' camping ground just outside the town. There, under his stern scrutiny, Mrs. Emma Smirch bowed her head over two hamburger steaks sizzling on her grill, bowed her head and turned away so that the Secret Service man could not see the twisted, strangely familiar leer on her lips. The Greatest Man in the World by James Thurber. <laughs> done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Countdown musical directors Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel arranged, produced, and performed most of our music. Mr. Ray was on guitars, bass, and drums. Mr. Chanel handled orchestration and keyboards, produced by TKO Brothers. Other music, including some of the Beethoven compositions, arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olderman theme from ESPN2, written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc., our satirical and pithy musical comments 
are by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever, and I'm proud to say my accompanist, accompanist, accompany, the woman who played the organ during my attempts at singing throughout 2023 and the Rudy song today. Thank you, Nancy. Our announcer today was my friend Larry David doing his impression of the late Bob Shepard from Yankee Stadium, and everything else was pretty much my fault for the 65th consecutive year. That's countdown for this, the 1,081st day since Dementia J. Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Use the 14th Amendment, use the Insurrection Act, convict him in court, use everything we got while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is Tuesday, January 2nd, 2024. Bulletins as the news warrants, and boy, will I be surprised if there is not a bulletin twixt now and January 2nd, 2024. Till then, thank you for your support in 2023, and let's hope that 2024 actually happens as scheduled. In the interim, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, good luck, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Whoa, Rudy, 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 are you bankrupt? Oh, Rudy, 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 are you broke? Oh, Rudy, 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 are you drugged up? Rudy, Rudy, did you go woke? Thank you, Nancy Faust. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, Every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.